Volume 2, Chapter 4 of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeira. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 2, Chapter 4. I returned to my family estate in the autumn of the year 2092. My heart had long been with them, and I felt sick with the hope and delight of seeing them again. The district which contained them appeared the abode of every kindly spirit. Happiness, love, and peace walked the forest paths and tempered the atmosphere. After all the agitation and sorrow I had endured in Greece, I sought Windsor, as the storm-driven bird does the nest in which it may fold its wings in tranquillity. How unwise had the wanderers been, who had deserted its shelter, entangled themselves in the web of society, and entered on what men of the world call life, that labyrinth of evil, that scheme of mutual torture! to live according to this sense of the word. We must not only observe and learn, we must also feel. We must not be mere spectators of action, we must act. We must not describe, but be subjects of description. Deep sorrow must have been the inmate of our bosoms. Fraud must have lain in wait for us. The artful must have deceived us. Sickening doubt and false hope must have checkered our days. Hilarity and joy, that lap the soul in ecstasy, must at times have possessed us. Who that knows what life is would pine for this feverish species of existence? I have lived. I have spent days and nights of festivity. I have joined in ambitious hopes and exulted in victory. Now... Shut the door on the world, and build high the wall that is to separate me from the troubled scene enacted within its precincts. Let us live for each other and for happiness. Let us seek peace in our dear home, near the inland murmur of streams and the gracious waving of trees, the beauteous vesture of earth and sublime pageantry of the skies. Let us leave life that we may live. Idris was well content with this resolve of mine. Her native sprightliness needed no undue excitement, and her placid heart reposed contented on my love, the well-being of her children and the beauty of surrounding nature. Her pride and blameless ambition was to create smiles in all around her, and to shed repose on the fragile existence of her brother. In spite of her tender nursing, the health of Adrian perceptibly declined. Walking, riding, the common occupations of life overcame him. He felt no pain, but seemed to tremble forever on the verge of annihilation. Yet, as he had lived on for months nearly in the same state, he did not inspire us with any immediate fear. And though he talked of death as an event most familiar to his thoughts, he did not cease to exert himself to render others happy, or to cultivate his own astonishing powers of mind. Winter passed away, 
and spring, led by the months, awakened life in all nature. The forest was dressed in green. The young calves frisked on the new-sprung grass. The wind-winged shadows of light clouds sped over the green cornfields. The hermit cuckoo repeated his monotonous all-hail to the season. The nightingale, bird of love and minion of the evening star, filled the woods with song, while Venus lingered in the warm sunset, and the young green of the trees lay in gentle relief along the clear horizon. Delight awoke in every heart, delight in exultation, for there was peace through all the world. The temple of universal Janus was shut, and man died not that year by the hand of man. Let this last but twelve months, said Adrian, and earth will become a paradise. The energies of man were before directed to the destruction of his species. They now aim at its liberation and preservation. Man cannot repose, and his restless aspirations will now bring forth good instead of evil. The favoured countries of the South will throw off the iron yoke of servitude. Poverty will quit us, and with that sickness. What may not the forces, never before ununited, of liberty and peace achieve in this dwelling of man? Dreaming, forever dreaming, Windsor, said Ryland, the old adversary of Raymond and candidate for the protectorate at the ensuing election. Be assured that earth is not, nor ever can be heaven, while the seeds of hell are natives of her soil. When the seasons have become equal, when the air breathes no disorders, when its surface is no longer liable to blights and droughts, then sickness will cease. When men's passions are dead, poverty will depart. When love is no longer akin to hate, then brotherhood will exist. We are very far from that state at present. Not so very far, as you may suppose." observed a little old astronomer, by name Marival. "'The poles proceed slowly, but securely, and in a hundred thousand years we shall all be underground,' said Ryland. "'The pole of the earth will coincide with the pole of the ecliptic,' continued the astronomer, "'and universal spring will be produced, and earth become a paradise. "'And we shall, of course, enjoy the benefit of the change,' said Ryland contemptuously. "'We have strange news here,' I observed. "'I had the newspaper in my hand, "'and, as usual, had turned to the intelligence from Greece. "'It seems that the total destruction of Constantinople "'and the supposition that winter has purified the air of the fallen city "'gave the Greeks courage to visit its site and begin to rebuild it. "'But they tell us that the curse of God is on the place, "'for every one who has ventured within the walls has been tainted by the plague. "'That this disease has spread in Thrace and Macedonia,' Well, and now, fearing the virulence of infection during the coming heats, a cordon has been drawn on the frontiers of Thessaly, and a strict quarantine exacted. This intelligence brought us back from the prospect of paradise, held out after the lapse of a hundred thousand years to the pain and misery at present existent upon earth. We talked of the ravages made last year by pestilence in every quarter of the world, and of the dreadful consequences of a second visitation. We discussed the best means of preventing infection, and of preserving health and activity in a large city thus afflicted. London, for instance. Marival did not join in this conversation. Drawing near Idris, he proceeded to assure her that the joyful prospect of an earthly paradise after an hundred thousand years was clouded to him by the knowledge that in a certain period of time after, an earthly hell or purgatory would occur 
when the ecliptic and equator would be at right angles. Our party at length broke up. "'We are all dreaming this morning,' said Ryland. "'It is as wise to discuss the probability of a visitation of the plague in our well-governed metropolis as to calculate the centuries which must escape before we can grow pineapples here in the open air.' But though it seemed absurd to calculate upon the arrival of the plague in London, I could not reflect without extreme pain on the desolation this evil would cause in Greece. The English, for the most part, talked of Thrace and Macedonia, as they would of a lunar territory which, unknown to them, presented no distinct idea or interest to the minds. I had trod the soil. The faces of many of the inhabitants were familiar to me. In the towns, plains, hills, and defiles of these countries, I had enjoyed unspeakable delight. As I journeyed through them the year before, some romantic village, some cottage, or elegant abode there situated, inhabited by the lovely and the good, rose before my mental sight, and the question haunted me, is the plague there also? That same invincible monster which hovered over and devoured Constantinople, that fiend more cruel than tempest, less tame than fire, is, alas, unchained in that beautiful country. These reflections would not allow me to rest. The political state of England became agitated as the time drew near when the new protector was to be elected. This event excited the more interest, since it was the current report, that if the popular candidate, Ryland, should be chosen, the question of the abolition of hereditary rank and other feudal relics would come under the consideration of Parliament. Not a word had been spoken during the present session of any of these topics. Everything would depend upon the choice of a protector, and the elections of the ensuing year. Yet this very silence was awful, shewing the deep weight attributed to the question. The fear of either party to hazard an ill-timed attack, and the expectation of a furious contention when it should begin. But although St. Stephen's did not echo with the voice which filled each heart, the newspapers teemed with nothing else, and in private companies the conversation, however remotely begun, soon verged toward this central point, while voices were lowered and chairs drawn closer. The nobles did not hesitate to express their fear. The other party endeavored to treat the matter lightly. "'Shame on the country,' said Ryland, "'to lay so much stress upon words and frippery. It is a question of nothing.' of the new painting of carriage panels and the embroidery of footmen's coats. Yet could England indeed doff her lordly trappings and be content with the democratic style of America? Were the pride of ancestry, the patrician spirit, the gentle courtesies and refined pursuits, splendid attributes of rank to be erased among us? We were told that this would not be the case, that we were by nature a poetical people, a nation easily duped by words, ready to array clouds in splendor and bestow honor on the dust. This spirit we could never lose, and it was to diffuse this concentrated spirit of birth that the new law was to be brought forward. We were assured that when the name and title of Englishmen was the sole patent of nobility, we should all be noble, that when no man born under English sway felt another his superior in rank, courtesy and refinement would become the birthright of all our countrymen. Let not England be so far disgraced as to have it imagined that it can be without nobles nature's true nobility, who bear their patent in their mien, who are from their cradle elevated above the rest of their species, because they are better than the rest. Among a race of independent and generous and well-educated men, 
In a country where the imagination is empress of men's minds, there needs be no fear that we should want a perpetual succession of the high-born and lordly. That party, however, could hardly yet be considered a minority in the kingdom, who extolled the ornament of the column, the Corinthian capital of polished society. They appealed to prejudices without number, to old attachments and young hopes, to the expectation of thousands who might one day become peers. They set up as a scarecrow the spectre of all that was sordid, mechanic, and base in the commercial republics. The plague had come to Athens. Hundreds of English residents returned to their own country. Raymond's beloved Athenians, the free, the noble people of the divinest town in Greece, fell like ripe corn before the merciless sickle of the adversary. Its pleasant places were deserted. Its temples and palaces were converted into tombs. Its energies, bent before towards the highest objects of human ambition, were now forced to converge to one point, the guarding against the innumerous arrows of the plague. At any other time this disaster would have excited extreme compassion among us, but it was now passed over, while each mind was engaged by the coming controversy. It was not so with me and the question of rank and right dwindled to insignificance in my eyes when I pictured the scene of suffering Athens. I heard of the death of only sons, of wives and husbands most devoted, of the rending of ties twisted with the heart's fibres, of friend losing friend, and young mothers mourning for their firstborn, and these moving incidents were grouped and painted in my mind by the knowledge of the persons, by my esteem and affection for the sufferers. It was the admirers, friends, fellow-soldiers of Raymond, families that had welcomed Perita to Greece, and lamented with her the loss of her lord, that were swept away, and went to dwell with them in the undistinguishing tomb. The plague at Athens had been preceded and caused by the contagion from the east, and the scene of havoc and death continued to be acted there on a scale of fearful magnitude. A hope that the visitation of the present year would prove the last kept up the spirits of the merchants connected with these countries, but the inhabitants were driven to despair, or to a resignation which, arising from fanaticism, assumed the same dark hue. America had also received the taint, and, were it yellow fever or plague, the epidemic was gifted with a virulence before unfelt. The devastation was not confined to the towns, but spread throughout the country. The hunter died in the woods, the peasant in the cornfields, and the fisher on his native waters. A strange story was brought to us from the East, to which little credit would have been given had not the fact been attested by a multitude of witnesses in various parts of the world. On the 21st of June, it was said that an hour before noon a black sun arose, an orb the size of that luminary, but dark, defined, whose beams were shadows, ascended from the west. In about an hour it had reached the meridian, and eclipsed the bright parent of day. Night fell upon every country, night sudden, rayless, entire. The stars came out shedding their ineffectual glimmerings on the light-widowed earth. But soon the dim orb passed from over the sun and lingered down the eastern heaven. As it descended, its dusky rays crossed the brilliant ones of the sun and deadened or distorted them. 
the shadows of things assumed strange and ghastly shapes. The wild animals in the woods took fright at the unknown shapes figured on the ground. They fled, they do not wither, and the citizens were filled with greater dread at the convulsion which shook lions into civil streets. Birds, strong-winged eagles, suddenly blinded, fell in the marketplaces, while owls and bats shewed themselves, welcoming the early night. Gradually the object of fear sank beneath the horizon, and to the last shot of shadowy beams into the otherwise radiant air. Such was the tale sent us from Asia, from the eastern extremity of Europe, and from Africa as far west as the Golden Coast. Whether this story were true or not, the effects were certain. Through Asia, from the banks of the Nile to the shores of the Caspian, from the Hellespont, even to the Sea of Oman, a sudden panic was driven. The men filled the mosques, the women veiled hastened to the tombs, and carried offerings to the dead, thus to preserve the living. The plague was forgotten in this new fear which the black sun had spread, and, though the dead multiplied, and the streets of Ispahan, of Peking, and of Delhi were strewed with pestilence-struck corpses, men passed on gazing on the ominous sky, regardless of the death beneath their feet. The Christians sought their churches, Christian maidens, even at the Feast of Roses, clad in white, with shining veils, sought in long procession the places consecrated to their religion, filling the air with their hymns, while ever and anon from the lips of some poor mourner in the crowd a voice of wailing burst, and the rest looked up, fancying they could discern the sweeping wings of angels, who passed over the earth lamenting the disasters about to fall on man. In the sunny clime of Persia, in the crowded cities of China, amidst the aromatic groves of Kashmir, and along the southern shores of the Mediterranean such scenes had place. Even in Greece the tale of the sun of darkness increased the fears and despair of the dying multitude. We, in our cloudy isle, were far removed from danger, and the only circumstance that brought these disasters at all home to us was the daily arrival of vessels from the east, crowded with emigrants, mostly English. For the Moslems, though the fear of death was spread keenly among them, still clung together, that, if they were to die, and if they were, death would as readily beat them on the homeless sea, or in far England as in Persia, if they were to die, their bones might rest in earth made sacred by the relics of true believers. Mecca had never before been so crowded with pilgrims, yet the Arabs neglected to pillage the caravans, but humble and weaponless they joined the procession, praying Mahomet to avert plague from their tents and deserts. I cannot describe the rapturous delight with which I turned from political brawls at home and the physical evils of distant countries to my own dear home to the selected abode of goodness and love, to peace, and the interchange of every sacred sympathy. Had I never quitted Windsor, these emotions would not have been so intense, but I had in Greece been the prey of fear and deplorable change. In Greece, after a period of anxiety and sorrow, I had seen depart two whose very names were the symbol of greatness and virtue. But such miseries could never intrude upon the domestic circle left to me. While secluded in our beloved forest, we passed our lives in tranquillity. 
Some small change, indeed, the progress of years brought here. And time, as it is wont, stamped the traces of mortality on our pleasures and expectations. Idris, the most affectionate wife, sister, and friend, was a tender and loving mother. The feeling was not with her as with many, a pastime. It was a passion. We had had three children. One, the second in age, died while I was in Greece. This had dashed the triumphant and rapturous emotions of maternity with grief and fear. Before this event, the little being sprung from herself, the young heirs of her transient life, seemed to have a sure lease of existence. Now she dreaded that the pitiless destroyer might snatch her remaining darlings, as it had snatched their brother. The least illness caused throes of terror. She was miserable as she were at all absent from them. Her treasure of happiness she had garnered in their fragile being, and kept forever on the watch, lest the insidious thief should as before steal these valued gems. She had fortunately small cause for fear. Alfred, now nine years old, was an upright manly little fellow, with radiant brow, soft eyes, and gentle though independent disposition. Our youngest was yet in infancy, but his downy cheek was sprinkled with the roses of health, and his unwearied vivacity filled our halls with innocent laughter. Clara had passed the age which, from its mute ignorance, was the source of the fears of Idris. Clara was dear to her, to all. There was so much intelligence combined with innocence, sensibility with forbearance, and seriousness with perfect good humour, a beauty so transparent, united to such endearing simplicity that she hung like a pearl in the shrine of our possessions, a treasure of wonder and excellence. At the beginning of winter, our Alfred, now nine years of age, first went to school at Eton. This appeared to him the primary step towards manhood, and he was proportionably pleased. Community of study and amusement developed the best parts of his character, his steady perseverance, generosity, and well-governed firmness. What deep and sacred emotions are excited in a father's bosom, when he first becomes convinced that his love for his child is not a mere instinct, but worthily bestowed, and that others less akin participate his approbation? It was supreme happiness to Idris and myself to find that the frankness which Alfred's open brow indicated, the intelligence of his eyes, the tempered sensibility of his tones, were not delusions, but indications of talents and virtues which would grow with his growth and strengthen with his strength. At this period, the termination of an animal's love for its offspring, the true affection of the human parent, commences. We no longer look on this dearest part of ourselves as a tender plant which we must cherish, or a plaything for an idle hour. We build now on his intellectual faculties. We establish our hopes on his moral propensities. His weakness still imparts anxiety to this feeling. His ignorance prevents entire intimacy. But we begin to respect the future man, and to endeavor to secure his esteem, even as if he were our equal. What can a parent have more at heart than the good opinion of his child? In all our transactions with him, our honor must be inviolate, the integrity of our relations untainted. Fate and circumstance may, when he arrives at maturity, separate us forever, but as his age is in danger, 
his consolation in hardship. Let the ardent youth forever bear with him through the rough path of life love and honor for his parents. We had lived so long in the vicinity of Eton that its population of young folks was well known to us. Many of them had been Alfred's playmates before they became his schoolfellows. We now watched this youthful congregation with redoubled interest. We marked the difference of character among the boys and endeavored to read the future man in the stripling. There is nothing more lovely, to which the heart more yearns than a free-spirited boy, gentle, brave, and generous. Several of the Etonians had these characteristics. All were distinguished by a sense of honor and spirit of enterprise. In some, as they verged towards manhood, this degenerated into presumption. But the younger ones, lads a little older than our own, were conspicuous for their gallant and sweet dispositions. Here were the future governors of England, the men who, when our ardor was cold and our projects completed or destroyed forever, when our drama acted, we doffed the garb of the hour and assumed the uniform of age or, or of more equalizing death. Here were the beings who were to carry on the vast machine of society. Here were the lovers, husbands, fathers. Here the landlord, the politician, the soldier. Some fancied that they were even now ready to appear on the stage, eager to make one among the dramatis personae of active life. It was not long since I was like one of these beardless aspirants. When my boy shall have obtained the place I now hold, I shall have tottered into a grey-headed, wrinkled old man. Strange system! Riddle of the Sphinx, most awe-striking! that thus man remains, while we the individuals pass away. Such is, to borrow the words of an eloquent and philosophic writer, the mode of existence decreed to a permanent body composed of transitory parts, wherein by the disposition of a stupendous wisdom, moulding together the great mysterious incorporation of the human race, the whole at one time is never old or middle-aged or young, but in a condition of unchangeable constancy, moves on through the varied tenor of perpetual decay, fall, renovation, and progression. Willingly do I give place to thee, dear Alfred, advance offspring of tender love, child of our hopes, advance a soldier on the road to which I have been the pioneer. I will make way for thee. I have already put off the carelessness of childhood, the unlined brow and springy gait of early years, that they may adorn thee. Advance, and I will despoil myself still further for thy advantage. Time shall rob me of the graces of maturity, shall take the fire from my eyes, and agility from my limbs, shall steal the better part of life, eager expectation and passionate love, and shower them in double portion on thy dear head. Advance! Avail thyself of the gift, thou and thy comrades, and in the drama you are about to act, do not disgrace those who taught you to enter on the stage and to pronounce becomingly the parts assigned to you. May your progress be uninterrupted and secure. Born during the springtide of the hopes of man, may you lead up the summer to which no winter may succeed. End of chapter 4